vacation to Florida. How do you like that? He missed out on all the fun, uh, snow, and our worship this morning. But uh, we're, we're thankful he gets a break. He works hard and certainly deserves it. Kids, you already know what to do because you're doing it. So uh, flee before the message starts. <laughs> For the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 43 through 52. You know, when we come to Mark's account of the Lord's arrest, we find a series of actions set into motion that would not only change the disciples, but that would change the world. Jesus was now experiencing the process that would lead to the cross, his death, and our salvation. In Mark's account, we find evil men who use force to try and accomplish their will. But what we find is this, they cannot thwart God's will. Unknown to them, their actions of bringing Jesus to the cross would mean our salvation and the opportunity for them as well if they would turn from their sin to God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We need to see a contrast here in power. The power of the religious elite, the power of a traitorous man thwarted, and the power of our humble Lord Jesus Christ who accepted the treatment of evil men that he might have the power to save. That's the contrast that we see in this passage of Scripture. And I think it's going to speak to us about the importance of using our power, any authority, any strength that we have, to be agents of good, to be those who seek to accomplish God's will rather than those who resist it. Now we begin this passage in the 43rd verse, and we find that Mark begins to share with us a change of scene. We left our Lord at the Garden of Gethsemane and right at the end of his time of prayer and agonizing over the coming cross, we find that Jesus says to his disciples the third time that they fell asleep while they were to prepare for the coming events that the hour has come. Here comes the betrayer. But you know, Mark gives us insight into what the betrayer was doing between the time of the Passover in the upper room until the time of Jesus' arrest. And what we find is Judas had plans of his own. He had met with the religious leaders of Israel, and he was plotting to take the Lord Jesus Christ captive and lead him to his execution. When we look at this, we can see the treachery of Judas. And what we're going to see is that treachery unfolds. We're going to find that we see more the evil of Judas and the evil of these spiritual leaders. So let's think about this as we look into this text. Look at verse 43. Just as he was speaking, he referring to Jesus 
Judas, one of the twelve, appeared with a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. While Jesus and the disciples continued the Passover, while Jesus and the disciples were in Gethsemane with Jesus praying and the disciples unfortunately sleeping, Judas was somewhere else. He was talking to the chief priests and he was setting up the Lord Jesus Christ. They were plotting together. And the nature of that plot becomes clear in just a few words that Mark chooses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says. There was a crowd armed. Their intent is clear by the fact that Jesus and his disciples were not a violent bunch. Jesus, as a matter of fact, taught forgiveness, love, peace. Those were messages that these would have heard in the temple courts. As a matter of fact, there had been ample opportunity many times over, if Jesus were doing wrong, for them to arrest him while he was teaching in the temple courts. But what happens? At night, under the cover of darkness, they plot together. And they get a group of armed thugs together to go and arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the scripture even says they were armed with swords and clubs. You get sort of the image of a group of people that are rousing one another up. It's almost like a lynch mob. It's like one of the scenes that you see in movies where people get torches and clubs and swords and anything that they can grab because they are riled up and they're ready to go by force to take someone. And that's what they were planning. What we see in this, though, is a misconception. You see, as they were plotting the arrest of Jesus, ultimately the murder of Jesus, they thought that their might made them right. And they were absolutely wrong. Perhaps even in the back of their minds, they're saying to themselves, hey, if what we're doing is wrong, God will stop us. But you can't use that justification. You can't look and say, because I have the power to do this, it is right for me to do this. You have to look at truth. You have to look at God's word and God's will in order to know what is right. So here are these people. They are assembling together. They are coming with clubs and swords and torches, and they're sent by the religious elite of Jerusalem to do wrong. What's amazing is this. At any point... Jesus could have stopped this. Their perceived power is nothing compared to the power of God. In fact, in John's Gospel, John gives us some insight that took place during the arrest as these armed men with swords and clubs and torches were coming toward Jesus. John 18.4 says this, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Now, let's pause here for a moment and let's understand exactly what Jesus said. Jesus replied, literally, I am. 
In the Old Testament, the name for Jehovah, I am. So the power of Jesus saying, I am, look at what happens. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him, and when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You picture dominoes just going over by the power of a push. That's what happened with these people. They weren't appalled, they weren't shocked, they weren't surprised. They weren't overwhelmed because they were listening to what Jesus said and just couldn't believe it. It was the power of Jesus' word, I am, that pushed them back and forced them to the ground. So this entire group of thugs that came with intimidation, seeking to overpower Jesus and his disciples with a word, were knocked down by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as they were coming for him, it wasn't that their power overwhelmed Jesus. It was that Jesus was willingly following the will of the Father. That's what we see and what Mark records for us. But we also see something else. We see the depth of Judas's apostasy. What's amazing about Judas is this. For days he had been plotting to take Jesus by force. He had concocted a plan with the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders that by night they would all go and they would subdue the Lord Jesus Christ. But think about what's going on with Judas. Judas had sat under the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ for three years. Judas had seen every miracle, every act of compassion and love that Jesus Christ did, and yet, what did he do? Resisted refused to believe. If anyone ever had the opportunity to respond to the truth, it was Judas Iscariot. But in the hardness of his heart, he rejected all the light that God had given him. He rejected. And he decided to pursue his own devices. Perhaps it was the temporary power that he felt boy, look, I'm in with the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. I have a whole crowd of armed men at my disposal. Perhaps that seduced him. We don't know the motivation. It's speculation. But we do know this, that Judas resisted the truth of God and turned on the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior, refusing to follow Him after ample, ample opportunity. But you know, we also see in this the cowardice of the spiritual leaders. The spiritual leaders of Israel did not have an answer for Jesus. They had their tradition. They had their ideas about how their religion should be received and the position of power that they should experience, but they didn't have an answer for the challenges of Jesus Christ. So rather than answering or repenting, they decided to eliminate the one who spoke truth, the very Son of God. When we look at their cowardice, notice they don't even do their own dirty work. It says here, they sent from the chief priests 
the teachers of the law and the elders, the people who were armed with the swords and the clubs. They refused to go themselves. Send others to do that work. So it gives us insight into them. And why did they not go themselves? Because of fear of the crowd. Earlier in Mark chapter 12, we find this. Speaking of the religious leaders, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. With all of their power, with all of their plotting, they still feared. They were afraid of what would happen. But Mark's story continues. We've already seen the treachery of Judas. But the signal that Judas arranged with the crowd is significant when we look at it here in the book of Mark. Verse 44 says this, Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Now, when we look at Judas's plot, we find that he is willing to betray the Lord Jesus Christ with a sign of respect and friendship. In our culture... It's a little unusual if you have a man come up and kiss you on both sides of the cheek. You know. Most of us as guys kind of go, eh, you know, we don't get it. But that's our culture. In the ancient Near Eastern culture and even in the current Near Eastern culture, it's very common to greet one another with a kiss on each side of the cheek. There's nothing weird about it. It's a cultural greeting, but it's also in many schools, a sign of respect. You see, often the disciples would go to their rabbi and greet him in the same way. They would either kiss his hand or kiss his cheek as a sign of respect and friendship. So think about Judas. Judas has twice, as he had already plotted in his heart, to turn against Jesus. He has twice shown this connection and community and friendship as a sign with Jesus. Look at verse 20 of this same chapter. When the disciples were in the upper room, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And notice verse 20 says this. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips his bread into the bowl with me. Again, a sign of fellowship and community and closeness. So what was Judas doing? Judas was taking the signs of friendship, the sign that he was one with Jesus in community, and he was using them against the Lord Jesus Christ. They had no meaning to him. And you know, that's a warning to us. There are those who claim to be a part of the community of faith. There are those who will share a meal with you. There are those who will be warm and friendly to you. But their heart isn't turned toward the things of God. We have to look at what they teach, what they believe, and not merely look at them as just a familiar face 
a person that we see around a lot? What is at the core of their heart? Judas's actions betrayed him as a betrayer. And ultimately, if you're in a church body long enough, you'll find that Satan loves to take wolves in the clothing of sheep and place them in our midst to do harm and damage to many. And that's what we find with Judas. He is doing harm, passing himself off as one of the twelve, passing himself off as in close connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ was far from his heart and far from his mind. Notice the signal that he arranges. The one I kiss is the man. And then look at what Judas says to those who would capture the Lord Jesus Christ. Lead him away under guard. Now Jesus would go peacefully. But yet here is Judas. Something in him so detested the Lord Jesus Christ that he wanted him brutalized, captured, intimidated, drug away under arrest. But then we come to the 45th verse. And in the 45th verse, there's something amazing that we find. Look at Judas and his boldness. Because in verse 45, it says this, going at once to Jesus. So, in other words, there wasn't hesitation. This was something that Judas seems eager to do. And so, he's stepping quickly toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how he addresses him. Rabbi. And he kissed him. Now, we don't quite get the whole rabbi thing in our culture. But in the day in which Jesus lived, this connection between disciple and rabbi was a close relationship. For a student to turn on their rabbi was unthinkable. And yet, here is Judas using the greeting that any disciple would have normally given to their rabbi as a means of taking Jesus arrest, under arrest. The treachery of what's going on. It just leaps off the page of Mark as we look at this. But then we come to the 46th verse. The 46th verse, we find that seizing Jesus by force was something only by Jesus' permission. We've already seen that John's account said that Jesus spoke the word, I am, and all of that group that had come to arrest Jesus fell flat on their backs by the power of that word. But here we find the violence of what's taking place as we see in verse 46, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Now, our translation, seized, is really a softening of what the original language says. The original language says they laid hands on Jesus. Sometimes, because of the familiarity of the story, because we're reading it rather than seeing it, sometimes we, we lose what's going on. 
It wasn't that Judas kissed him on the cheek and somebody came to Jesus and said, you're now under arrest, let's go. You know, that's not what took place. There was violence. They were laying their hands, multiple people, seizing Jesus, taking hold of him. And I don't think they were gentle as they did it. They wanted to send a message to Jesus and his disciples, we're in charge, and we are taking you away. So I think that this was chaotic. I think it was brutal. And I think that they were trying to let others understand that they were there to do Jesus in. It reminds me very much of what Isaiah said about our Lord. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. That's the picture of our Lord willingly submitting to the treachery of Judas, to the treachery of these chief priests. Why? Because God's higher purpose would be served. Jesus allowed sinful men to apprehend him, to arrest him, that we might be saved. But then we come to another part of the passage. And what we find is a response by Jesus to Judas and to those who would take him captive. What we find are spiritual priorities always guided the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will guide us through difficult times as well. But first, we find in verse 47 an incident. One of the disciples who was standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The Scripture speaks in this text of kind of a response, a reaction by one of the disciples. He was seeking to solve his problems by violence. He was seeking to give power back in response to power. But I don't think it was as premeditated as one might think. Recognize this. You have a crowd of armed men with swords and clubs rushing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And because you're standing near the Lord Jesus Christ, they're rushing toward you. So what I think Peter, that's the disciple we're talking about here, what I think Peter did was in reaction, draw his sword and swing at the nearest body that was coming near. Not necessarily something that was premeditated as much as just a response to a chaotic situation. If you've been in a chaotic situation, you know that sometimes you act and then think. 
And that's something that all of us do, and I think that's something that Peter did as well. I think this also shows us that Peter was no coward. He wasn't a pansy who was just standing there saying, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? He responded. And not thinking about what the Lord would have him do, just in his own flesh, in his own reaction, he probably responded the way he always responded. He was kind of an outdoorsy, tough guy. And who he was came out right away. You know, I like Peter. I think Peter is an amazing study in human nature and in the transformative power of God. And here we see it on display. He's responding as many men would respond in self-defense, but really not thinking through what was going on. You see, Peter and the rest of the disciples had been told that this was going to happen. Had he and all the disciples prepared in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus had asked them to, things might have been different. But we also know this. Even the Old Testament prophesied that the disciples would fall away, that they would all flee, and that included Peter. So all of them failed in this moment. When we look at some of the other gospel writers and what they had to say about Peter, John definitely identifies the swordsman and the recipient of the sword play, Malchus. It says this, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. But we see something amazing. Even in this bedlam, Even as these things are taking place, what did Jesus do? The only miracle mentioned leading up to the cross from the time of the Passover, Jesus healed Malchus. It says, Jesus answered, no more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. So there is the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who had come to drag him off to jail. He heals But you know, what is amazing is all four of the Gospels include this account. Why? I think that the Gospels want us to recognize something. That physical solutions to spiritual battles really don't accomplish that much. In Matthew... Jesus said this, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. For you think, or do you think, I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. By the way, it would just take one angel, but he could have called 12 legions of angels. And then verse 54 But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Now there's the insight. When God reveals his truth to us, don't try and overcome what God has revealed. Don't try and have your own solution to your problems that God addresses directly in his word. 
for Peter and the other disciples. They were going it alone. They were coming up with their own solutions to the problems. They were reacting rather than preparing, and as a result, the sword play and the record concerning what took place. Something else we find. Scripture guided the Lord in what he did and in what he said. When we look at verse 48, it says this, Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus stood for the truth. Knowing that they were plotting his murder, Jesus continued to teach the word of God in the temple courts. He knew what it meant. He knew that it would accelerate their plots and their plans, but Jesus did it because he was speaking the word of God. And listen, when you speak the word of God, very often you will find consequences by those who don't want you to share it. It doesn't mean that we back away. We do what the Lord Jesus did. We continue to speak the word of God. But something else that we find in Jesus' words, he calls them on their cowardice. You know, these pictures of Jesus as kind of this milk toast type of individual that didn't call people on things is inaccurate. Jesus called people on sin. And he's calling these people on sin crystal clear. He's saying to them, you've come like I'm starting a rebellion. If I'm starting a rebellion, why didn't you stop me in the squares? No, you come by the dead of night. And you come as a lynch mob to drag me off. And Jesus called what they were doing wrong because it was wrong. But notice what else Jesus says in this text. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus submitted to the will of God that was directly revealed in scripture. And there's a lesson in here for us. There are times when the word of God says something and we look at it and we say, there is no way that's going to work out good. What the scripture is telling me to do right here. This is going to cause problems and My goal in life is to avoid problems, not to pursue them. So I'm just backing away. That's the way we approach things many times. Listen, when the Scripture says something, it's God's revelation. It's God's truth. And Jesus is saying, because God has said it will take place in this way, I will submit. I will follow what God has said. You know, we need to follow in the same way. We need to follow what God says. We need to be true to his word. We need to study it and know what it says. And then we need to submit to what it says. And this is what Jesus did as our example. And this is what we must do if we follow him. But then we come to the final part of this text. The sorrowful account of Jesus' followers taking flight. 
Right at verse 50, it says this, Then everyone deserted him. Every one of the disciples left his side in the chaos that had come. Jesus had said, all of you will fall away. And now they were fulfilling what Jesus had said. In their wildest imaginations, they probably, when Jesus said that, thought that is impossible. Every one of them. But in the midst of the fear and the intimidation, they fled. No show of hands, but how many of us have thought to ourselves, boy, if I had been there, I would have stood with Jesus. It's tempting, isn't it? But we don't know. But then we come to verses 51 and 52. And this is only recorded in the Gospel of Mark. But it talks about a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment. And he was following Jesus. And they seized him. And he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, the Scripture doesn't identify who this young man is. But many commentators agree, and I am in agreement with them. This was Mark. You see, many believe that the house where the upper room and the Passover took place was Mark's house. And many of the commentators agree that perhaps Judas had first gone to the house before the Garden of Gethsemane, and Mark, in his bedclothes, was running to warn the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is all speculation. We don't know who it is. But it seems as though whoever is writing about this is doing so on a very personal level. And in sharing this story, they share their own culpability in what took place. It's easy for a gospel writer to say, all of the disciples fled, and almost leave the impression like, well, maybe I wouldn't have. For Mark or whoever this was, they fled too. Something else that we see in this story, and this is for sure, Mark is possible, may not be, but whoever it was left in haste. When they grabbed hold of his garment, he ran right out of the garment. That means haste. I am out of here. That means that he ran as quickly as he could. But it also shares something else. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, being found naked is a terrible, terrible shame. So, in many ways, this also speaks of the shame that this person felt, and perhaps by extension, all of them felt as they were running away. Being found naked meant that he had to hide. As he was going from where he was, perhaps back to his house, he would have hidden along the way because of his nakedness. He would have felt the shame of someone seeing him just as he is, 
nothing there, nothing to hide him. You know, that's a picture of all who abandon the Lord Jesus Christ. Any of us can flee at an inappropriate time. As you're sitting around a group and somebody starts to run down your faith, you have a decision. Do I stand or do I run? When there's a person who makes a very bold statement about his lack of belief and wonders how anybody could believe any of this nonsense, as they would say, do you stand or do you flee? I think a lot of us can identify with the young man that's mentioned here in verses 51 and 52 at some point in our lives. We want to be those who stand on the word and the truth like Jesus and not be like the young man who fled, leaving his garment in full shame. We've seen two approaches to power this morning. We've seen the religious leaders who tried to use their power to intimidate and to harm the Lord Jesus Christ. But we've also seen Christ's power that is omnipotent, all-powerful, held in check so that he could accomplish the will of the Father. We want to be like Jesus. We want to make sure that when we do something, it's in keeping with the Word of God, the truth of God, that we might bring glory to God and accomplish his purpose. So that's the lesson we should take from this as well as a recognition of all that Jesus sacrificed in going to the cross for us. Willingly, he went because he loves us so much. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us all that we need to stand on the truth of the word of God. May we be faithful May we not run away, but may we stand. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.